Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Vonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Magnus Halvorsen is CEO of 2020 Bulkers and one of the brightest young leaders in the field. Magnus knows how to lose and make money in the shipping industry and how important timing on investments and cycles are in the industry. In this episode, we discuss why Magnus started 2020 Bulkers, why they have a unique business model and dividend policy, and how to succeed in business. Let's start the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Super glad to have Magnus joining the podcast. Magnus, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Christopher. For those few people outside of the shipping industry, can you give them a quick introduction into who you are and how you ended up in shipping? Uh, well, my, my name is Magnus Halvorsen. I run a um, Oslo Stock Exchange listed shipping company called uh, 2020 Bulkers, uh, which I guess we'll get more into, but we we have a fleet of eight ships. We have the most modern fleet of any listed shipping company out there and 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 i think we are unique in many ways among other paying monthly dividends um i think you asked me to say a few words about you know what i've done in the past i uh my professional career has been started out on the financing side um working with um, uh, norwegian investment banks with a, a global footprint so i uh, I spent uh, six or seven years with Pareto, and then I was part of building out uh, Plato's investment banking efforts, which was later sold to Clarkson's, the world's largest chip broker. Um, and I guess in that period, I, I worked a lot with shipping, and, and I guess um, bo- both learned about the industry, uh, but also was exposed to, to to many different business models. And I think that uh, eventually... Uh, you know, gave some ideas on 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 how to build and run a shipping company. So I was going to do that one day, and um, and, and eventually that's that's how we started uh, 2020 Bulkers in 2017. We'll come back to to the business model, but I just had a had a quick question during this period. Did did you have an interest for shipping? Because I feel there's some generational effects here that my generation isn't that much into shipping, but maybe you're in the age where it was natural at 18 years old to read the shipping analytics and stuff. No, I, I don't think I, I was drawn to shipping at the age of 18. And, and, and really, I started working in, in finance with a firm that was focused on, on shipping and energy. Uh, but it is a fascinating industry because it's um, on many levels, really. I mean, you, the, the world needs shipping to go around. If you take a more, more of a macro view, 95% of all goods in the world uh, travel at the ship at some point. So it's really... It's it's part of the engine that makes the world go round, um, and it's also an industry with some um, uh, some fantastic opportunities to make good returns if you get it right. I mean, I think uh, you, everyone knows the success of, uh, uh, of of ship owners who've made it right, and and maybe you hear less about the ones that got it wrong. But there's no doubt that. Uh, that, that, that's it's an industry with, uh, with with great opportunities. And then I think it's one of the few industries still uh, that has strong level of, of personal um, 
relationships and contacts. You know, very large and dominant companies are controlled by, uh, and I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the, the really big shipping companies. They're controlled by by individuals who are uh, hands-on. Um, you know, dealing with the business day to day, and it's this combination of globally important industry that, that can have large swings, which can make people good returns if you get it right and, uh, and, 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 and strong individuals, very different individuals with, um, uh, with, with, with a hands-on approach to running the business. Definitely. If we talk about the macro for just one more second, I think, am I biased for saying that Norway has a good position in the shipping industry or is it just because we have some few Norwegian people that done extremely well or do you have countries like Portugal, etc., that should be positioned to be good in shipping that isn't good because how which country has the best competence in shipping from I mean, it depends of, of course which part but i think norway has had a very strong heritage in shipping and and it probably dates back to the 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 age of whaling if, if you were to to find find the beginning maybe even the viking area if i think about it but but today um i think norway has um is definitely a global hub for shipping, which makes it possible to uh, to, to establish and run shipping companies out of Norway. Um, and you have everyone that goes into the ecosystem. Uh, th- there are good capabilities. There are good shipping lawyers. There are good financiers, um, both on uh, on the debt and equity side. Uh, there are good ship brokers. Um, and, and there is good talent for building shipping companies. So it's uh, in a way fascinating that, 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 that you, can, you can start a company in Norway, you can work with the best advisors and, and you can track some of the best people globally to, to run that company. Um, How so, much it's oil related in terms of the shipping competence in Norway or is it not paired at all? If you have the oil competence, is it natural synergies into shipping or is it not? I, I, I guess uh, th- there are probably uh, some synergies, but there are dominant companies in in crude shipping in Norway. You have, of course, Fredriksen, controlled by John, uh, Frontline, controlled by John Fredriksen. Um, you have uh, DHT, which has a strong presence. You have Norwegian American tankers with a strong presence. So some of the most foremost companies are uh, are, are in some way affiliated with Norway. So is is it correct to say that the success of the big ones are individually driven and it's not really Norway? We're just lucky to have some people that have extremely big talents in shipping. And then we have the the ripple effects into Norway as a whole with competence and hubs, etc. Um, I think behind the most successful companies and... and, and... Uh, and, and I mentioned so, some some of the good ones that have come out of Norway. There are strong individuals that have been good at at managing risk, and and I think you have to attribute a lot of that success to to those individuals. But it's impossible to to run any kind of company with one person alone. It requires a team of good people, and uh, and I think the good people that enable these businesses to be run out of Norway are are hugely important. Let's get back to your company because you've seen a lot of business models. I suspect you've seen a lot of good ones. You've seen a lot of bad ones. If you can just start with uh, answering one simple question, and that is, how is it? How can you lose money fast in shipping? What are the biggest mistakes you can do that can ruin a company? Because it seems 
it seems like it's possible to have a bad business model in shipping and get caught pretty easily. Yeah, I, I think uh, timing on, on when you invest is the single most important thing. And, and try to give you an illustration. Um, a cape size, which is a fairly similar vessel to what we have, and, and it's been around for a long time. So you can look at historical prices uh, in, in a long context. Um, a cape size vessel, uh, a resale, which basically means a brand new ship um, being sold again in the market, was worth close to 180 million in 2008. Um, when we started this company in 2017, we ordered a similar, but actually a bit better, slightly bigger ship, and we had scrubbers on uh, for just over $45 million. So, of course, whether you pay $180 million for an asset or $45 million is, is, is going to be a pretty important starting point for whether you make an attractive return on that investment. Um, and I think one of the problems, of course, is... Uh, when the markets are good, when rates are good, people feel confident uh, and, and the cash flows are good. So that, that's when it's perhaps easiest to order. But you should actually invest when things are bad and have been bad for a while, because that's when you, you create a good risk reward on your investment. Um, and that's really what, uh, what was one of the most important things when, when we started this company was the fact that we could order our ships at, at the 20 year low and we could order the best ships from an economic perspective with fuel consumption and, and scrubbers and everything. I think the other thing that people get wrong when you, you lose money in shipping is if you have uh, too high costs and if you have too much debt, uh, because at the end of the day, you have to be able the lifespan of a ship which is 20 years maybe. There will be hopefully some very good times, but there will also be some bad times. And you have to have a cash break-even level that you can carry through the bad times. And unfortunately, it's a bit, it's a bit with banks like ship owners. Ship owners, when they've made a lot of money and prices are high, it's easier to go and order that ship. Really, that's when you shouldn't do it. Uh, I think uh, banks typically lend out more money when uh, when the values uh, are high because then they can see good cash flows. So we have been extremely focused in this business about thinking about the downside as well. And we have a saying, which is, if, if you can just protect the downside, the upside will take care of itself. Uh, and I think in the short life of the company for two years, we've already tested our business model a few times. And and we can get into that later, but but I think you asked what the biggest mistakes one can do, and I think the key premise for this company is not to make those mistakes. We want to order ships when they are cheap, and we don't want to have too much debt, and we want to have a cash break even that we think we can always uh, meet even when unexpected things happen. Makes sense. I mean, your analysis uh, made, made me think about a quote that Warren Buffett, Buffett has that is, be greedy when others are fearful. Maybe you can take that uh, quote into the shipping industry because in every industry, and of course, I know more about the salmon industry, it's so easy to invest more in good times. But if you have a salmon price that suddenly drops, it's harder to do those investments. If you can talk a bit about the market conditions. So, I've heard you said previously that Q1 is the toughest one. It's weather related, it's it's cold, the investments are more slow. Is that hypothesis also correct in 2020 in this crazy year or is Q1, Q2 and Q3 as bad? 
Uh, no, I think if you if you're looking at our specific market, so so firstly, tell people what we are doing. We we have large spell carriers that carry iron ore, uh, which goes into steel production. And the main trade for iron ore goes from Australia to China and from Brazil to China. Um, as you pointed out, Q1 is typically weak quarter. The main reason is because you have cyclone season in Australia, which disrupts exports from time to time. And you also have uh, rainy season uh, in Brazil, which means they're able to ship less volumes. And particularly Brazil is very important because of the distance to ship one ton of iron ore from Brazil to China requires almost three times the shipping capacity. Um, this year, I think you had a perfect storm in a negative sense. Um, Vale, which is the largest iron ore producer in Brazil, had an accident um, in, in 2019. And they had to undergo lots of maintenance and inspections in Q1 this year. So they, they had already told people it would be a low export quarter. On top of that, they got the worst rainy season in 100 years. So Brazilian export volumes were, were the lowest uh, seen in many, many years during Q1. Uh, and, and to some extent, it also uh, ran into to Q2. Um, How about politics? Is that hard as well in Brazil, or it doesn't really matter if you have the capacity in the fleet? I mean, iron ore exports is extremely important for Brazil. Today, the prices of iron ore are around $120 per ton, uh, and you're producing it for with with you know the capex you need to keep your operation going, let's say around $15 per ton. Uh, and shipping costs today are around 20. So there's massive margins, which also means uh, very significant oil revenues uh, for uh, for the Brazilian government. And uh, similar, I guess, to oil in Norway. And, 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 and therefore, the government in Brazil is very pro-iron ore exports. Um, and I think um, politically, on, on the other end, client... The biggest client, if you will, in, in this market is China. China is 70% of iron ore imports, seaborne. Um, following the, the COVID outbreak, uh, politically, China has responded with lots of, of stimulus to support the economy. And a lot of that is going into infrastructure, and they've issued special infrastructure bonds. So you're seeing record high steel production uh, in China, which is, of course, very good for for the demand for iron ore. Um, and meanwhile, the, the iron ore inventories, essentially what you need to make steel, uh, are low in China. So, so it's a quite interesting dynamic right now, where, where the biggest client is firing on all cylinders. Uh, they don't have too much inventory on what they need to, 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 to keep on, on pushing out new infrastructure projects. Uh, and uh, the exporter, which means the most in terms of uh, ton miles, Brazil is, is recovering sharply. So rates have gone. I mean, I think I, I, I want to forget it, but, uh, but we, we were at 2000 a day, I think, for Cape size rates in the early part of this year. Uh, as we're speaking now, I mean, Cape size is making 23, 24,000 a day. So it's been a very sharp recovery. And, and our ships, which I guess we can talk about later, but they are they are larger and they uh, they burn less fuel than a standard capesized ship. So we we earn thirty five percent more plus the premium for our scrubbers. 
So right now it's quite good times in the business. Um, Super interesting. I just want to have a, a, an easy question because many that listening listening right now, I don't know how much they know about iron production, etc. But it's characterized as the king of um, dry bulk. Who's the queen and who's the prince in terms terms of the resources? Because it seems like iron is the big one. And what's coming up next? Um, no, I think the major transported commodities are, are iron ore, and then you have. Uh, we don't transport coal, but if you look at dry bulk as a sector, coal is an important commodity. And of course, coal is uh, is decreasing as a part of the energy mix going forward, but there is still growth in coal. Um, you know, Vietnam, for instance, has doubled their imports this year. We see a lot of the Southeast Asian economies are, uh, are, are still building new coal-fired uh, capacity. Um, and then the the rest of the dry bulk trade, I would say, is a lot of minor bulks. It's it's grain, it's soybeans, um, it's sugar, uh, it's uh, it's other industrial commodities. But they typically are, are transported on on smaller ships. How does the percentage look in terms of value? Like, is it possible? Is it indexed? Which resources have the highest value in terms of in the shipping industry, or is it? Hard to calculate. To, to be honest, I haven't uh, I haven't looked at that, but I, I would assume at least with iron ore prices where they are now, by far iron ore is the is the most valuable commodity. What what's interesting when you talk about value is of course that as I touched upon, there's very good margins for the iron ore producers today. And and freight is a pretty small component of uh, of the total cost. So uh, if you take Australia, which actually ships most of the iron ore, um, they are producing for around the best producers $13 per ton. They're selling at 120 and shipping costs are less than 10 So if this market really gets tight, there's nothing to prevent them from, from paying you know, 50% more or double what they're paying today. Um, so that's that's an interesting aspect if you talk about value of the commodity, and it, and it reminds a bit about how things are in in tanker shipping when shipping cost is a relatively small part of uh, of, of the total cost of the commodity for the end user, which gives rooms when markets are tight for these very wild spikes in rates, which we we see from time to time. Makes sense. So can you take us back to the founding moment of this company because? We live in a world where we want leaders that are visionary. They have 100 years planned for the companies. Jack Ma says it's like he plans a company for the next thousand years. Jeff Bezos says it's day one always. And I don't know how you, which framework you used when you founded this company, but it's built on quite some interesting premises. You wanted to have, if, I'm, if I understood it correct, a business model you're confident in. But you don't want to use the money to reinvest in a bigger fleet. You just want to prove that this business model is sound and can give a lot of value to the shareholders. Yeah, I, I think uh, if you take take a step back, so having followed shipping for for a long time, and uh, and, and I guess two thousand eight, the market peaked with the cape size being worth one hundred eighty million dollars. Uh, the other thing we didn't talk about, and this is. In my opinion, this is what really kills and creates shipping cycles. 
what happens when times are good is people get overly confident, including the banks, including the people who provide equity, and, and too many ships are ordered. In 2008, uh, the Cape size order book was 80%. So that means for every 10 ships on the water, there's eight on order. Uh, even if demand and growth in, in bulk shipping has been remarkably steady over time, there's no market that can take 80% growth in two years. So that led to a crash. And I think looking at shipping and looking for opportunities, uh, we talked about timing. So timing relates to asset values. What price are you paying for the assets? But of course you have to have a view on the supply demand outlook. And I think the other thing that made us comfortable in, in 2017 was the fact that the order book, which was 80% in 2008, had come down to around 10%. Then it gets more interesting because you know that 10% is delivering over two to three years. You know that ships have to be scrapped every um, 20 years or so on average. And on top of that, there is growth in this market. Um, I think people have a, an impression that uh, that commodity shipping and, and bulker shipping is a hugely volatile business, which is true, but it doesn't come from vol very volatile demand. I think if you take some longer lenses on and, and look at, at the key commodities, tra we transport iron ore, but we compete with ships that transport coal. Um, the seaborne trade for those commodities has grown last 30 years on average by 5%. And it's been... I think three years without growth in, in, in cold in those years and, and maybe four years of iron ore. Um, so it's, it's, it's really not the demand side that's the problem. The world is moving forward and, and, and shipping is an integral part of it. So we, we, we looked at that supply side and, and we were comfortable. And I, I was working at the time after Clarkson's. I, I worked for uh, Turula Trem, who had been one of my... Uh, my, my, my important business relations for, for many years. Uh, and he, of course, has lots of experience investing in shipping. And I think we agreed that risk reward for investing in dry bulk was attractive. That was really it. We, none of us had the vision that we wanted to have a shipping company for the sake of having a shipping company or to say we have so many ships and, and we are ship owners. We were looking at this as investors and we saw dry bulk as an opportunity. Then I think when we decided there was an opportunity in dry bulk, we, uh, we, we said, okay, how do we best play this? We saw that new build prices were at the 20-year low. We saw we could get good terms with the yards because they hadn't been taking orders. And there had been a change in, uh, in, 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 this gets a bit technical, but it's important. You know, the market we're in is dominated by Cape size vessels. Um, there's a design called Newcastle Max, which is our ships, that's 15% larger. Why is that important? Well, in this business, we, we carry goods and the people who operate them in the spot market get paid per ton they carry. So you can take more tons with you and the ship costs effectively the same to operate, you make more money. Uh, and these ships, now port infrastructure had been um adopted so that you could actually trade these big ships just at flexibly as, as a cape size so we saw okay there's very good economics in ordering in newcastle max we saw the imo 2020 rules coming uh so we we went for the scrubbers which has actually given us a quite good return uh even if the spreads are much lower now than uh, than what most people were hoping for 
And then lastly, you, you called Iron Ore uh, the king of cargo, I think you said. I would say, you know, Cape Size or Newcastle Max is the king of bulker vessels. Uh, when the markets come, uh, both values and rates move a lot more in the bigger sizes. So when we were going to be in a, in a segment, we wanted to be in a segment that was going to pay off the most uh, when, when the market uh, went off. Is this, in, is this similar to the airline industry or the cruise industry? Maybe not so much the cruise industry, but is it, is it hard to time which model to buy from the suppliers on the boat side? Is that like you have to be technical to understand supply and demand? Or is it because the, the investment cost is pretty big, I guess. I don't know how easy it is to give away a boat similar to an airline, for instance, in the leasing market, etc. Uh, it's a good question. And, and, and I think... Um... That's one of the things we also why we you can if you want to invest you can always buy an old ship. One of the reasons we wanted to buy new builds is because there's been an evolution, just like in uh, the old industries you mentioned, where fuel consumption has gone down, and that also gives you a bigger benefit. So a combination of evolution in size and evolution in fuel economy is the reason why our ships are making 35% more than the average ship we're competing with, which are almost the same size. Um, but then I think you, you talk about the business model. Uh, what we decided, um, I think you meet a lot of, of, of particularly public companies who say, oh, we have a growth strategy and we want to, today we have eight ships, we want to have 20 or we want to have 40. We don't think like that. We think about this as an investment where we bought the right assets at the right time. And then we looked at, of course, every cycle is different. But if you had discipline last time around, if you invested at the previous low in 2003 and you did nothing more, what would have happened? Well, a Cape size vessel in 2002, it was cost $36 million. If you sat on that ship and just traded in the spot market for 16 years, you would have made $200 million in cash flow. So that's actually what would have happened if you got it right on the last cycle. And then we looked at the public shipping companies and they, most of them have been refinanced. Some have been bankrupt. The share prices are a fraction of what they were at the peak. So how can this be, you know, a fundamentally okay asset or actually a good asset bought at the right time uh, has an industry attached to it with very bad equity returns. And I think the answer is where you started because these companies, they didn't stop investing. Uh, and as they were making money, investors were keen on giving them more money to buy more ships. And, and, and they bought when money was available and easy to come by. And then you buy expensive ships and you take on too much leverage. So that's why we said, let's keep this a simple company. We, we, we buy them, we want to have fewer ships bought at the right time than a lot of ships bought at the, at the wrong time. And then we're just going to harvest that. So we, we, we of course, ordered the ships. We, we built a small organization around it. We got financing in place, which gave us a very attractive cash break even. And now in June this year, we took delivery of the last ship uh, out of the series of eight. And now for us, it's really all about... Uh, paying dividends back to shareholders, paying that equity back to the shareholders. And I think we are the only shipping company, and, and there aren't many other companies for that sake, that pays a monthly dividend. So we want this to be a very transparent and simple company. If you're an investor that believes in dry bulk, 
Here you can buy the eight most modern assets that, that you can find on the public stock exchange in one company. It's got good financing, which, uh, which, which protects you if times are bad. And in okay to good times, we pay out everything we earn as dividends. That's really the, the business model. Got it. So just a couple of quick questions, and I think you can wrap them all in one. So why the name of the company? Why to use 2020 as a part of the name? A second one, how hard is it to get the financing right in a global market? If you have the right business model, do you use a lot of time to fund it up? And the third question, how should investors calculate in their Excel sheet the pollution regulations and the new rules that implies to shipping? Because it's a bit hard to do an Excel probably, but you should have some frameworks in mind when investing in the shipping. Sure. Um, the name, I, I'm not sure if we have a, a very good name. And uh, I had to come up with the name in very, we were sitting there incorporating company and the lawyer called and said, this company needs a name. And I said, well, the ships, the, most of them are there in 2020 and there's some IMO regulations. So we, if there was any thought behind it, that might have been it. Um, but uh, and, and some people ask, are you going to change it to 2021 bulkers next year? I don't think so. I think we're going to keep it, but it, uh, but we'll have to live with that poor decision. Um, Funding I, side. Yeah. How hard was it to fund it, the project? No, I think um, we, we funded it gradually. Um, we have... Um, we have a main shareholder, Mr. Troim, who's been very supportive on the equity, and Frederik Halvorsen. Uh, we have Klavenes, we have, have some other, other good shareholders that supported it, but you know, it hasn't been easy because we, uh, we, we had to raise the equity at the worst possible time, um, the majority of it, when you had just had this dam accident in Brazil and and, and exports collapsed and rates collapsed. Uh, that was in the spring of, uh, of 2019. I think very happy that we, we had you know some supportive shareholders uh, and and also got uh, quite good support from from shipping families who, who are not there as strategic investors, but people who know shipping. Because at that time it was very unpopular with the funds. Of course, no one wants to buy a shipping company when rates are five thousand a day. But we we got some good support from people who really know shipping, and that I think that gives us some some confidence that we put together a good company. The other thing which is important is um, is of course the banks, and I think um, even if uh, the traditional lenders are reducing their exposure to shipping, um, we we managed to get very good terms. We have a syndicate consisting of uh, Nordea, SCB, and and Danske Bank. Who, who's funded six of the ships. We're borrowing money with an 18-year amortization profile. We have a margin of 250 basis points, and which we've now locked. We've, uh, so, so effectively, we're, we have 3% interest locked in until the loan matures uh, end of 2024. Uh, and then we have two ships on, on lease with, uh, with Ocean Yield. Um, so, I think we, we've been able to, to, to put it together um, in, in a good way. Uh, but, but you do need both on the bank and the equity side, you need some people who believe in your business model. 
uh, and, uh, and and even if it wasn't easy, particularly on the equity part, we've been able to put it together. Uh, but then on the other hand, we've also now delivered on on everything we said we were going to do. We we have done, um, and 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 we're going to do everything we can to to stick to to that business model. Makes sense. So basically, you're touching upon how an investor should look at the company. How simple is it to understand the the gearing of the loan side, etc. But can you bring that argument over to the environmental side because there are coming a few regulations that will affect how companies are valued. So how do you add that into your analysis? Yeah, we we are actually spending a lot of uh, a lot of time right now because there are some new potential but very likely in our view incoming regulations and is it okay if we get a bit technical here uh, so in in 2013 there were rules imposed called eedi which regulated the allowed co2 emission per ton transported for every ship built after 2013 and that's being implemented in in several phases where Phase two was implemented January 1st this year. Phase three comes in, in 2025. Um, and, and we, of course, uh, comply with that on our ships. Um, there is now a proposal that's come out from, it's been proposed by Norway and Japan to the IMO, which is I guess, the UN agency governing shipping, uh, that a new law called EEXI shall come into effect. Essentially, EEXI, as it's proposed, it's the same as EEDI, but it also retroactively works for ships built before 2013. And um, this can be passed already in November, and it can be implemented as soon as 2023. I think this can have massive effects on, on the industry on the supply side. Uh, unfortunately, it's not easy to, to make some very general assumptions because all ships are different in their speed and consumption and, and pollution. But at least from what we know today, we know that we, we, will, we are okay with regards to these regulations. But what we see is a large part of the fleet is going to have to reduce their output, which will effectively also reduce their speed. Uh, and that's good for the supply-demand balance in addition to the environment. Uh, but there are also ships which, uh, which are polluting so much, if you will, that they will not be able to meet these new regulations, even if they derate their engines. So I think if this gets implemented, it can lead to accelerated scrapping. And that's when this market starts to get very interesting because we are at the lowest order books. So forward fleet growth is the lowest we've seen um, probably for 20 years in, in dry bulk and, and most of shipping uh, for that sake. But you could get these new regulations which, which takes even more supply out. And then I think every, everyone uh, who, who's considering to order a ship today are quite uncertain on what to order because there there is an increased focus there is increased regulations relating to to the environment so if you're going to invest in a new ship that you get two years from now maybe three and that's going to be having a 20-year useful life you want to make sure you get the technology right um 
And I think a lot of people are, and some have also ordered ships that have so-called dual fuel that can run on LNG. Um, and, and that's a step in the right direction, but it's, it's not a home run because these ships only reduce CO2 emissions with 20% compared to the, the ships we are operating. And they cost more for a Cape size, they cost maybe, or Newcastle Max, they cost 25% more. And there's a small saving on, on the fuel, but you can't really make the economics work, in my opinion, even if some people have done it. So you have a situation where the clients say, yes, we want to be greener, we want to have cleaner ships, but they're not willing to pay more to support that transition. And that really means that uh, anyone who's considering ordering a ship will, uh, will think twice and maybe, maybe wait a bit longer. So I think all this technological uncertainty, in addition to, to the issues you're having on the financing side, in addition to potential new regulations which can accelerate scrapping, means we're going to have very low fleet growth um, in, in dry bulk and, and, and certainly all the shipping segments in the years ahead. But I guess that's very similar to the airline industry and the cruise industry. Should you just uh, try batteries or is it too heavy? And if you order it, do you know the technology is in home run economically? But just on the regulation side, are you positive about the regulations? Does, they, like, it, does it make sense to regulate the industry like that? Or do you feel it's uh, politicians who have made the frameworks? Or do you actually agree that these regulations are the right ones and it's positive for the industry as a whole? No, no I, I think I, I definitely agree on the direction we need to move. I mean, we, we, we need to uh, to do what we can as an industry to contribute to, to lower emissions. And I think, uh, on the other hand, the challenge is that, uh, that you need shipping. Um, you need ships on the water to make the economy uh, go around. So we, we have, we feel the most modern and the most fuel efficient uh, ships that, that we can have today. Um, and, um, and, and, and that's really, I think, the decision we could make at the time when we chose to invest. So this will have to be a gradual uh, change for the industry because it's such a large industry with, with a large installed base. It's not possible to change it overnight, but there will probably be some hard lines like this potentially EXI, which will be very uncomfortable for some people with, uh, with all the ships. But I think also keep in mind that we're talking about improving an industry, which is actually quite good for the, for the world. Shipping emits, to my knowledge, 2.5% of CO2 emissions globally. And it's by far the most carbon efficient way of transporting goods. So uh, left with other options, whether it's rail or trucks or, or planes, shipping is, is the way that pollutes the least. And, and we're talking about improving that industry. So there's no doubt we're heading that way, but it's, it's going to happen gradually. Makes sense. Just a couple of quick questions. Uh, COVID, uh, Corona, how does that affect shipping? Is it easier to control that since you are on the waters or is it harder because you can't get people off? No, that, that's been the biggest issue for us and I think for the industry has been um, crew changes. Uh, and, and I think that's also a problem on a humanitarian level that uh, I think seafarers have fell between uh, two stools, if you will, and uh, and, and because of quarantine restrictions, etc., it's been very difficult, if not at times impossible, to conduct crew changes. 
I think we've been working very closely with our technical managers and, and, and we have been able uh, to do so. Um, uh, but that's, I think, been one of the toughest logistical challenges for the industry. And then, of course, each segment in shipping is affected in their own way. I think, ironically enough, uh, dry bulk, uh, or particularly iron ore shipping, ha may have been a beneficiary. Because China, as I said, is the biggest client. Uh, they have responded to, to COVID by stimulating the economy on the infrastructure side. Uh, and that's driving demand for the goods we're transporting. The rest of the world has been down. But I think as the world eventually comes out of COVID, uh, you can have a situation where the, the biggest uh, guy in the room, China, is running on all cylinders whilst the others are recovering. And there's no slack in the system. Iron ore, as I said, iron ore inventories in China are at the lowest level seen in 10 years. It's not like the oil market where inventories are high. Um, so, uh, so, so I, th I think uh, there might be a very interesting catch-up effect for, for our business on, on COVID if you take the logistical issues aside. Super interesting. I think we'll end it there, Magnus, in this episode. Thank you so much for joining. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi everyone, Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care. <laughs>